equals spin The propaganda's win Stress feeding on my attention My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now This way with good intentions Welcome to 1 200, the independent politics and media podcast. We have for our midweek podcast where we cover different issues as opposed to the broader uh, generic current events. We're meaning to try and get something out on this for, well, since the election last year, really, we're going back to talking about COVID. You'll have seen us talking about it online, obviously, but it's always good to do some longer form content as well. I'm joined by my co-host, Oliver. How are you doing, Oliver? Sure, yeah, I'm doing pretty well. Thank you. And we're joined by our returning guest, Susie Wilds. How are you, Susie? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good, thank you. And uh, first time guest, uh, Peter Kelly. How are things, Peter? Very well, thank you. So this came out of a conversation online with, uh, I think, Long COVID Aotearoa uh, Twitter account, um, discussing the issue with COVID in schools as the pandemic continues uh, and there are still large amounts of people getting infected uh, and very few, uh, I guess, on-the-ground health measures to help mitigate that, um, you know, as, as even a baseline. And Peter, you're engaging with some of uh, that discussion around the different legal options that might be available to people that find themselves in a dangerous health and safety situation, or, or however you however you might want to frame it. Do you want to quickly uh, just enter yourself to our audience so they know where you're coming at this from? Right. I'm a barrister who works in Wellington. Um, I work um, in employment law um, and also just in general general litigation work. Um, so that means that I turn up in, say, the employment court or the high court. A lot of the uh, legal work in Wellington is judicial review work, which involves essentially challenging government or other public decisions. And so that's sort of the, the lens that I, I bring to the world. So when I see, for example, schools making decisions um, which affect the the health of their staff and students, I'm inclined to think about whether those are justifiable from a legal point of view. Fantastic. And Susie, um, maybe don't need much of an introduction uh, <laughs> at this point uh, in the piece, but do you want to quickly uh, talk about, or just give us a rundown of, of where you're coming at uh, the discussion tonight from? Yeah, so yeah, kia ora everyone. Um, I'm Susie Wiles, um, Associate Professor at the University of Auckland, microbiologist and known to some as the COVID lady. Uh, not that I have COVID, but I uh, I talk about it a lot. So I guess, um, you know, this was a brand new virus and over the course of the pandemic, I've become one of New Zealand's experts in it. I guess I'll put one caveat out there is that um, I do have a job <laughs> uh, and I do have, um, so COVID was, uh, was, I mean, became my life and my job for, you know, three or so years but I have had to get back to my actual job and my actual research. So I am not keeping up. I don't read all the studies uh, that are coming out. Uh, it is actually impossible to read all the studies that come out. There are now so many of them. Um, so I, I tend not to read them all in depth anymore, which I was doing for the first few years of the pandemic. Um, so everything I'm going to talk about is really the headline stuff that I am seeing from, you know, just trying to keep my hand in to find out where things are going, but it's not my main area of actual uh, research. Fantastic. Thank you for that, both of you. As far as COVID goes, there's been, I guess you'd, you'd say, a global 
uh, movement by the government, um, media institutions, uh, people who have the power to make decisions about this stuff, to saying we've moved on from COVID. Uh, that I think maybe hearing less that the pandemic is over and uh, so much as just having it be ignored completely at this point. Although in the last uh, 12 to 18 months, uh, the pandemic is over was definitely something coming out of the mouths of politicians with reasonable frequency. It's not over. It COVID continues to be in the community and it continues to uh, evolve. People uh, continuing to get booster shots. And I think even a lot of Western governments still give uh, or put out health advice saying you should get a booster shot um, and you should mask um, and you should do this and you should do that. Uh, but with no uh, framework uh, framework mitigation or health measures uh, that are mandatory or really even supported. Uh, I think one of the things we saw in the last couple of months was that the government said it was going to continue funding uh, rat tests. So there's this understanding that COVID is still out there, that it still has the potential to create a, a worse public health situation. Uh, and some of that funding and some of that messaging remains but Susie, are you able to give us, I guess, a crib notes of where <laughs> you feel we're at, and particularly in the New Zealand context? Yeah, so I guess let's take a, a step back. Um, so really, you know, New Zealand for two years uh, treated this pretty seriously. Um, you know, it was about basically buying time for the development of vaccines and, and things like that. And most other countries in the world obviously didn't take that approach. So they had a, the pandemic's over, it's nothing to worry about. Um, really, some of them within a few months of the pandemic beginning. Um, others, it maybe took a, a year or so, but they they got to that. Actually, it's not that bad, you know, only really going to kill you if you're old. And so most of those people were, you know, had died in their first few waves. Uh, and so with the um, vaccines and various things, drugs coming on, on online, it was like, yeah, this is all kind of over now. We're all we're all good. We can now live with COVID. Then, of course, yeah, so vaccines did become available. So that became a good option for us. Uh, unfortunately, because they weren't available equitably all over the world, um, that meant, you know, that there were places that didn't have good vaccination rates. Um, we actually did really well here to, to get the vaccines out. And so, um, you know, that, that then Omicron arose. It really was, uh, I guess, because it was the evolution of a, of a version that was so easily able to overcome vaccines. It really meant that, you know, we while we were in a better position, we weren't really in the position we would have liked to have been opening up. But we were dependent on everybody else around the world. And so it was really the world had declared game over. And so it was kind of, I guess, you know, our government declared game over too. Um, so we're kind of at a stage now, I guess, where everybody else was several years ago. Like they've all been through this phase of, oh, you know, it's just just, just this thing now that happens. And and it's a kind of amazing because in some countries, like they just don't even talk about it anymore. So people get sick. There's, there is a little bit of a um, conspiracy. I don't know, a, a little bit of a move by, you know, uh, by 
governments, by media to not call things COVID. So everything's like, oh, it's a summer flu or it's a, you know, a summer cold or whatever. It's like, no, it's COVID. <laughs> but, you know, if you just don't test for it, which most countries don't, then you won't find out about it. Right? But it's very clearly not the disease it was at the beginning, right? When, you know, it was this sort of brand new thing that we had nothing for and no, you know, it just, and it killed a lot of people. It's now very much something where we're starting to understand that while we have good ways to stop people dying initially, which we didn't have before, now we're starting to see the sort of midterm, you know, or the the the, the long COVID and the longer uh, kind of impacts. And what's really unfortunate, this is happening here in New Zealand, it drives me insane, is that there's all this kind of, uh, because the acute stage of the infection isn't so bad anymore, um, Let's just not think about it. Let's not use the tools that we got that could prevent um, the stuff that's that's really bad, the stuff that I'm really worried about. So in all honesty, I'm not actually that worried about old people anymore. Like they were the people who I was very worried about initially because they were the ones who were hardest hit and were dying. Now they're mostly vaccinated. They've got access to Paxlovid if they get sick. And the stuff that's the the stuff that I'm worried about, the things that might be affecting people in the you know in the six months, a year, whatever, those are the things that are not actually going to really impact them much, and they're going to impact younger people, right? So um, that's a kind of long way of saying we're in a stage where people, where other countries were a few years ago. But it's now this kind of denial and this just sort of, oh, well, it, there's nothing we can do. So we've just got to learn to live our life. And what drives me insane about that attitude is that there is loads of stuff that we could do. And it requires kind of concerted effort. It requires probably legislation and, and, you know, and government support to get it in place. And it denies the fact that this virus is awful and has huge impact on many many people and 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 the impact it kind of builds with every infection so if we are if we're basically resigning ourselves to a life of a covid infection every year or two every year then the impact that that's going to start to have is it's just going to get worse and worse and worse right uh, and we could do something about it. So it drives me insane. And uh, and I get really angry that we're not doing stuff because the the, the fewer of us do it, the, the harder it is for those who of us who are doing it. And it's very ableist, right? Because there's the stuff that we're not doing would make life easier for lots of people. It would be helpful, not just for COVID, but for other stuff. Um, and so it's just, Oh, yeah. So I'm in that kind of stage where I get, I'm just angry at everything and angry about the fact that we aren't doing good communication, um, you know, uh, things so that people understand how it's spread and what, what we can do to prevent it. Um, because it's a false economy, right? It's a false economy right now. You know, the, the attitude that that school had that had the, you know, whatever it was, they had a big, big teacher day and then everybody got COVID and now they had to close the school for whatever it was. You know, the impact of that and even long term, the impact of not having any good strategies to stop COVID. And so, well, you've got people off sick, you need to have, you know, staff um, subbing in, you know, all of these things are, it's a false economy not to deal with it well. And so I, I apologies, I'll try to stop ranting, but it drives me insane. And, you know, and the evidence is really clear that the more infections you have, you know, the more you're kind of rolling the dice that you're going to end up with these really, you know, potentially debilitating 
lifelong kind of illnesses and stuff. Are we able to go into that just um, a little bit more for maybe people who haven't heard as much about, I think everyone has probably heard the term long COVID by now, uh, but that, what that could look like. I know there are uh, support groups out there now. There are people who have had long COVID since year one. Yep, since the beginning. You know, and it kind of kicked in immediately after their initial symptoms uh, had cleared and they're no longer showing up as having COVID anymore, but they will be basically stuck in bed. Um, yeah. yeah. I know you said it was impossible to sort of stay on top of every single study that comes out, but there was that rather striking one the other day. It was like a couple of weeks ago that came out. Did, did you have any comment on the one about that talked about reinfection rates and long-term brain damage? So this is the thing about, about COVID, right? Is the virus, uh, so it doesn't affect everybody the same way. Um, and it can go to any part of your body and cause damage in any part of your body. And so there will be people who have, like we use long COVID as this kind of catch phrase, but actually it's probably a whole bunch of different things, right? So for some people, it will reactivate latent viruses and cause them to have shingles or, you know, things like that. For other people, um, it causes brain damage, essentially. We might call it brain fog, but it's actually brain damage. And we don't know for some people how long that's going to last for or whether they're going to make a full recovery from it, right? For other people, it's the fatigue. So we know that the virus basically uh, impacts the mitochondria, which are the like the energy sources, our little batteries, basically, and it kind of exhausts them. Um, and so there's all sorts of different things. And so some people, it makes them more susceptible to getting infected again. So that becomes this kind of runaway cycle where every time you get an infection, it's making you worse, making you more susceptible to getting COVID again and other stuff. So you end up then much more likely to get, you know, infections that in the past you would have just breezed through or not even had any symptoms. Now suddenly they're hitting you really hard. And the really complicated thing about this, I guess, is that there's also our genetics that come into play. So, you know, some people, there's, there are, it seems to be some genetic markers that some people are less likely to get COVID than others. Um, you know, there's, so it's, a and, and also, I guess, how you've responded to vaccines, what vaccines you've had access to, how many doses you've had. I mean, this is another place where we're doing it so wrong in New Zealand. Where So incredibly you know, rich people are less likely to get COVID. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, it, it does depend again on exposure. So what kind of job have you got? Um, you know, there's definitely with the long COVID stuff, you know, there's, there's cohorts of people who are more likely to get it. So if you're a woman, you're more likely to get it. And you're, if you're kind of 30s, 40s, 50s, you're more likely to get it. Um, so there's there's all these things that make it complicated. But when people say, well, I want to know what's the risk to me, it's like, well, I don't know which <laughs> which bucket do you fall into? What's your job? What's your age? What you know, what what's uh have you had it before? How many times have you had it? How vaccinated are you? Um, all of these kinds of things. So I think that the studies are really clear that it can damage any part of your body. For some people, it damages many, for others, it might just be small bits. Uh, and the and the consequences of this, you know, we're seeing the consequences, as you say, for those people who've got the what we call long COVID and are essentially um, whether it's you know have the brain fog and the fatigue uh, for months to years. But that's not the only thing. Even those people who've just had a mild infection, you know, it's probably caused damage that's going to increase your chance of getting Parkinson's or dementia or, you know, having a stroke, getting diabetes, all of those kinds of things. So 
it's it's the stuff you don't even see. You think you've got away with it. You think, that, oh, I've had it twice. It was okay. It's like, probably not. And this is the really hard thing, you know, I, I, I can't even talk about it with people really because it just makes me so sad. And says, oh, I've just had COVID. And I just think inside, I just think, oh, shit. What have you just, you know, what's going to happen to you now that you don't realize about? I'm terrible at dinner parties. Don't have them anymore. <laughs> Susie, do do we have a clear idea of why it does seem to have such um, sort of wide-reaching effects and ramifications on bodies, the way that it does? Because I know when it when it sort of first sprung up, it was very simple. It was a it was a respiratory thing, and you could test yourself by holding your breath, and it was it was very straightforward. And I I wonder as this sort of like um, public consensus on um, mitigation measures has has gotten more difficult over time i wonder if it, part of that is because it's been so hard to sort of pin down exactly what it's doing to people do we do we know why it does it operates the way that it does well so certainly that's the sort of thing that people are getting into now that was what's the molecular molecular basis so the whole thing for fatigue you know a, a friend of mine um has long COVID. she she um described it as like having like your batteries have run down. And so when the studies come out about how it impacts the mitochondria, it's like, well, that makes perfect sense because basically they're our batteries. So yes, your batteries are essentially discharging and unable to charge quite so well, right? The thing about this virus is that it, because of the receptor it uses, it can get into lots of different kinds of cells. So it's not right, just, right, you know, okay. if it just had a receptor that was on our respiratory tract, and that was the only cells it could get into, well, then that would be, you know, it's only a respiratory virus. But, it, you know, we get those symptoms on sort of first encounter because that's kind of where it's coming in. But it's the fact that it can move. So the brain stuff is basically because your nose and mouth are essentially when your nose is connected to your brain. We've got, you know, this is how we smell, right? We have got neurons that basically go all the way up to our brain. And so the virus can kind of travel on these and then get into cells because it has the receptor that's, you know, on uh, the receptors on lots of different cells. So that's, that's, yeah, that's the kind of stuff where we're starting to find out more about what it's doing. Uh, and one of the big problems is this, the fact that it has, it uses this receptor that's on so many different cells in our body. I remember very early on we were talking about on, on the podcast i think when we had you on as well susie um, and then we had teachers a few times uh talking about COVID in schools and a couple of times about uh in the workplace with people in unions uh and it felt like we knew what a lot of the possible solutions were uh in terms of cleaning the air and you know we've talked about you know some of the things we've seen in the last couple of months um since school has gone back uh, there have been a number of schools which have had issues with with COVID outbreaks uh, to differing degrees. But that was happening last year, and it was happening the year before, and it was happening the year before. Uh, I remember the teachers that we had on, um, a couple down in Wellington, saying they basically had 15% of their teachers, you know, available. They're having to close school reasonably regularly. Students were working from home most of the time, Um because there was this understanding that it would just rip through the precinct if if they weren't. And they were on here basically begging the Ministry of Education and the government to fund better air cleaning. Like, just get it, like, please give us some filters. Don't just give us a framework plan and say, do it yourselves. It's worked in some respects for schools that could fund it and had the, the time and the money to to go and outfit every single one of their classrooms. But one of the teachers we had, he said they had one 
they got one air filter um, and they had to pass it around 25 classrooms or something. And it was two years ago. Yeah, I think one of the, I mean one of the things the government did commission was a report into looking at ventilation in schools. And um, I mean, I there's been a lot of discussion <laughs> behind the scenes of lots of advocating for it. Um, putting together a committee to write a submission to open up an investigation to begin at studying and researching the beginning. Yeah, but but you know, but there's been lots of people going like, just do it, right? Yeah, um, and. It's never been clear to me where the where where the issues have been, but even just even just understanding. So I think one of the issues, the one of the concerns was, do we really need air, pur air purifiers? Right? Are there ways to do this um, that don't require an an outlay like that? If it's going to be hard to get these, you know, um, and that was where the well, what is the ventilation like? In schools and how do you improve ventilation and you know there's there's big there was there were big concerns and i think there still are big concerns about you know getting these uh if you don't get the right equipment and it's used you know there's no point having an air purifier in the classroom if it's too noisy and so they just turn it off and put it in the corner right it's much better to uh go okay well how can we how can we ventilate this room better the the thing about public health measures is the ones that work the best are the ones that are invisible that you don't see, right? For most of us, we turn on our tap and safe, clean water comes out the other side. That's an invisible public health measure, right? That the, that it's dealt with somewhere else and you don't even see it. And so that's the thing about, you know, are there, were there basically ways that we could improve ventilation that, that don't put the onus on the user? Uh, and so, you know, simple things like, well, th this was what was frustrating was, you know, do schools have access to CO2 meters to be able to measure what the ventilation is like in the classrooms? Can you just do it by creating crosswinds, you know, and it, and it doesn't have the wind is the wrong word, but, you know, like a, a, a sort of sort of a breeze. Like, are there ways to do this that don't require an expensive piece of kit that people might turn off because it's too loud? So these were the sort of things that that I thought were being done. <laughs> That should have been done. Should have been done in every school. Frankly, it should have been done in every workplace two years ago to say, what is it like in this building? How safe is it? You know, and the other thing we have to remember is what's changed in the last year has been the, you know, going from um having having to isolate if you've got COVID to now it's not mandatory. So it's basically only if you've really got sick leave you know left if you've got an employer that that's not going to let you take it right then you don't get it so i think there'll be more people more infectious people wandering around now than there were then because of that one change but we always knew also that the isolation time was never enough right <laughs> because some people can be infectious for three weeks um and so that's where again having these kind of invisible public health measures will help if somebody like that is in you know in your environment and it, I never really understood what happened with the schools thing, because it was very clear that it was just measure it, see what it's like. Because some schools, you know, the new modern schools are actually quite good. They've been, they're 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 automatically got really good ventilation, um, but others, it's terrible. And if teachers don't know, you know, now's the time to open windows or things, you know, to get to get the air exchanges, then. Even simple, you know, they're not doing even simple measures, which would make a difference.
Peter, that's probably a good um, spot to to bring you into this conversation. Is this something that you've been seeing discussion about in the area of employment law and health and safety over the last couple of years, or is it only starting to show up a lot more uh, in the last six or 12 months? Um, so there's been a lot of discussion of it overseas. Um, we have a slightly different environment than some overseas places uh, because we have the ACC regime. And so you end up with big cases in Australia, such as um, relating to the Ruby Princess cruise liner. And they have a whole infrastructure for dealing with personal injury. And people are used to doing that. People are used to funding that. And it, so it's sort of part of public discourse and people think of it as a tool available to them. It's not quite like that here. It is really clear that employers people in charge of workplaces have an obligation to keep their staff safe from workplace risks and that they have to take all reasonable measures to eliminate those risks. Um, I know that, that some of the people on this panel have found that employers are not always as assiduous about that as they could be. Um, the, when, I mean, the issues for, in schools, the issues for teachers and the issues for students, um, although the legal avenues differ slightly, the issues are very much the same. Um, you need to think about is that environment where you've typically got, you know, 26 people in a space together for six hours, is that intrinsically a higher risk setting than the community at large? And that that is a sort of a key legal question, which then drives a lot of other things. So if you go to the workplace website um, to what the, the desert that is where their COVID-19 information page once was, it now says, for most workplaces, COVID-19 is not a risk arising from their work that needs to be managed from a health and safety perspective. Now, my view is that that statement is wrong in law and that was an appropriate client in case we could have their statement changed. But even if we take that at face value, you can still ask the question of, let's imagine that's true for most workplaces. Is it true of schools and yeah when I say schools very very similar issues apply to you know, nursing environments and many other environments but is it true of schools where you do have this large number of people cooped up together and my my children's local school says that they follow the guidance given by the Ministry of Education and that sounds very reassuring so I asked them for that guidance um, and they sent me they said the guidance all lives at this web page and so I went to the web page and the only really clear and comprehensible statement on the webpage is from 15 August 2023, if a staff member at your school or Kura is sick with COVID-19, they are no longer required by law to self-isolate for a specified period. Um, and to a lawyer, it's great to take that, that sentence, which is technically accurate, and, and dissect it. But what it seems to me that sentence says to any normal person is there's nothing there anymore. It's all over. There's nothing that can be done about it. And so yeah, I've been very focused on how to um, debunk that because I don't think that's correct at all. And I don't think that it needs legislative change. I don't think it needs parliament to make new laws in order to, to illustrate that's not true or shouldn't be true. I think that all of the pieces are in place to take steps to address that. So is that to say that you, you don't think it necessarily needs to be a government level change, but rather that the you, you think the pressure should be on the schools to change the policy? Well, I, there's no doubt at all that 
it would be more effective to have top-down leadership on this. And right. there are lots of great things with the Tomorrow Schools Initiative and um, you know, community-led governance of schools and all these things, but it does have downsides. And one of those downsides is that it's completely unrealistic to expect thousands of tiny little largely volunteer governed organizations to grapple with these issues. But there is collective structures in place to attempt to remedy that problem. Um, it's just at the moment, those collective structures don't care about the current COVID risk. So there is the School Trustees Association. They have uh, a page from, they have an update from 2022 on their website saying, oh, things have changed with COVID. We're going to update our website soon. We have uh, the Education Review Office, which is, um, has a role in ensuring that schools have appropriate policies and procedures in place. I haven't yet engaged with them you know, uh, with, with an appropriate um, case behind me. I'd like, to, I'd like to engage with them. But so these are organizations that have an element of choice about what they, what they do. We also have on the other side of the picture, the PPTA and the NCDI. And those are the unions um, for respectively the secondary teachers and the primary school teachers. And they have enormous power to effect change. It is lawful and entirely encouraged to strike for health and safety reasons. But this is a collective action and it requires collectively understanding that action needs to be taken. Now, as Susie was talking about, uh, we will see COVID have cumulative impact. And for the first two or three years, um, teachers won't have many friends who used to be teachers, but now aren't able to work anymore. But very sadly, that picture will change over time. Teachers are teachers for a long time. They are exposed to, so you, you might want to, maybe you have an estimate of what their multiple is for workplace risk. But anyway, they, they have a multiple of workplace risk. It doesn't really matter whether it's they are twice as likely to catch COVID in any given period or five times as likely to catch COVID in any given period. They have substantially greater workplace risk than your average member of the population, it seems to me. And that's not that's not a legal fact as yet, but it seems like a factual fact. And over time, um, perhaps there'll be a cultural change so that unions want to take action. But even until then, there are still individual obligations that apply. So I've talked about I know I've talked for a long time, so feel free to jump in. But No, keep going, keep going. So I've talked about the various institutions that have a choice about whether or not to take action. And yeah, the Ministry the Ministry of Education, the Ministry of Health and WorkSafe, they have a choice unless um, I am able to find a client or any other lawyer in the country is able to find a client to um, challenge those positions and those judgments, which, and we can challenge those using the law, but who doesn't have a choice is anybody with an existing legal duty. And it is not controversial that people, principals in schools, boards of trustees have legal duties to keep their staff safe. And there are specific details to with ACC about the extent to which COVID is more of a risk in school than outside school, and that can change some of the details of the liability picture. But the Health and Safety at Work Act is powerful legislation. Um, action and obligations under it are not, are not things which you can just move on to other people. You often hear people say, oh, yeah, I don't worry about um, health and safety because Bob does it. Well, no, that's that's not the way the liability works. The way the liability works is that you each have the legal liability and it is not lawful and you can't effectively get out of liability for, say, fines under the Health and Safety at Work Act. 
Now, I'm very conscious that if the first legal case is involves suing the amateur board of trustees of a small under-resourced school, then that's not that's not great, right? Um, and so I think it is important to think about the structural factors when when choosing how to address these issues. But if you're a parent, you don't really have a choice. If I was a parent who had a vulnerable child and you know, as happened to me the other day, you got an email on the Tuesday saying, I'm sorry, term's about to start. You were going to have a meet and greet with your child's teacher, but uh, the teacher has COVID, so they won't be at the meet and greet on the Tuesday. Now, there's, it, it requires going out of your comfort zone slightly to say, I'm really sorry to hear that the teacher has COVID. Could you please let me know what steps you'll be taking to make sure that, that, that it will be safe for the children when that teacher returns to the classroom? Like, school starts on Thursday. Because they'll probably still be infectious. They may well still be infectious. <laughs> and yeah, if like me, you happen to be a lawyer, you might also go so far as, yeah, that, that, that's where I started. And I, I got, um, I, as I told you, the, uh, the link to the very helpful ministry guidance, um, which didn't tell me anything at all. And as a next step, you know, a, a parent who was prepared to be robust might point out that every teacher and every principal um, is a member, is registered with the teaching council and has a code of professional responsibility. And they're bound under the code of professional responsibility to promote the well-being from learners and protect them from harm. Now, that is a legal obligation, which is freestanding, and it's independent of whether or not there are a Ministry of Health regulations requiring them to stay out of the workplace, right? They have an active obligation under their professional responsibility code to avoid um, causing harm to their students. Now, they also have a freestanding obligation under tort law not to um, not to cause foreseeable harm to others, but we don't really talk about that in New Zealand, and so it's a bit exotic. But people do understand that if they're registered teachers, that you can make a complaint to the teaching council if they do not follow the code of professional responsibility. Now, I don't advocate for doing that against uh, frontline teachers because they are not in a position to make management decisions. They may not be in a position to take unpaid leave if their school is not going to give them paid leave for not returning to the classroom. Where I personally draw the line is that if they, if, if you're dealing with a principal, you're dealing with somebody who is being paid extra to take management responsibility, um, then it's ethical to hold them to account for those matters. But individual parents, if depending on my child is not especially vulnerable. So an individual parent might feel otherwise. If they had a very vulnerable child, they might feel otherwise. The thing that worries me is that there's 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 nothing that's really saying these are the facts. This is the stuff that you know. This this is sort of what we've lost is there's there's nothing that says these are the agreed on facts about this disease, so that we can from here uh, make appropriate decisions. So as you say, there's mm -hmm. this pointing to the website that just gives you a statement that basically is useless. What it doesn't say is. This virus is airborne. If people get infected, they might have no symptom. They may be infectious for several weeks. So, you know, there's lots of things that are the bits of information that you need, that everybody needs in order to be able to make evidence-based informed decisions, right? And that's what really frustrates me is that we don't have any of that stuff up there, up somewhere saying, these are the facts, 
you know, the, I think also what doesn't help is that we've got a, a lot of people who just don't think of children as being at risk. This, you know, right, right down to our vaccination team, the people making decisions about whether we have vaccines available to our children or not. You know, they're using um, uh, dangerous, you know, COVID being dangerous as a, as a, does it cause you to die within the first couple of weeks of getting infected? Not, is it going to dis disable you potentially for life? Or is it going to mean that you have a stroke or something in the next five years? And so they're using, you know, this, just because most children don't get so sick, they need to be hospitalized as the reason why they don't think COVID is serious for children. And that has had this, this sort of knock on effect of going, well, they're not in a group that needs to be protected. It's not like an aged care facility, right? Which will have quite different sort of, I guess, rule probably about how COVID is treated. And that that's really wrong because we do know now a lot about it. And but but those things that we know are inconvenient and require us to act. And that's expensive. <laughs> It's like you were saying at the beginning, the, the pandemic's not over, but the sort of sense of public urgency about it seems to be have passed, certainly. So one of the things that can, well, one of the things with the court process, obviously, you don't get a website up which says these are the agreed facts. The School, School Trustees Association could do that. But one thing you can achieve through the court process is just to establish a baseline of agreed and uncontroversial scientific fact. So it's really interesting to see, for example, in a recent decision from the Supreme Court about climate change, is that essentially the Supreme Court starts by reciting things which I'm sure the, uh, are commonly accepted that in a party you no, no longer go to, Susie, but you know that climate change is real, it has an anthropogenic cause, that it will be very bad when we almost inevitably exceed 1.5 degrees warming, these sorts of things. Now, so one of the things that is good about judicial proceedings, particularly in public law, is that the process forces the sides, in this case, the side would probably be a parent or a parent group or a teacher or a teacher group, and probably both the government and a particular school, to state what they believe the relevant facts are. And then the other side largely will agree with those, assuming they're uncontroversial. And at the moment, we're almost in a position with COVID where, at least in many workplaces, it's equally valid to say, oh, we're having a mass disabling event because of COVID, um, post-COVID sequelae, or however you pronounce that word. And it's equally valid to have the one person in the corner who says, oh, no, that's actually caused by the vaccine. And people are allowed to have their own facts. And I, one of, and so I think that is one useful thing that can be done using the legal process um, is to say to say the school trustees association, well, you don't have any guidance, but there was a judicial review recently completed in early 2025, where the Ministry of Education agreed that these were the key facts about COVID in education and the impacts of long COVID on teachers, and those were all you know regarded as uncontroversial and formed the basis of the court's judgment in early 2025. Um, that is a much better basis for persuading School Trustees Association to put out information to all of the boards of trustees in the country than the current position where essentially the people who think COVID is real are an interest group, the people who believe that um, the vaccine contains nanobots are an interest group, and our views are equally valid to 
some people. All the evidence you need that this is not a nice virus are in the fact that it's a biological safety level three organism. And so the irony is that if I wanted to do any research on this, I could only do it in specialized facilities um, completely protected from it being an airborne virus. And then I could take all of those special equipment off and walk into the office and breathe it in because it's being spread by people infected in the office. So it's just... It's yeah, <laughs> it's that, that sort of disconnect, I think, between the reality of what we're dealing with and the way that it's talked about and understood publicly and by just even uh, the way people who are supposed experts uh, are talking about it in the political sphere, uh, it's baffling. It, it feels um, like a sort of collective insanity. It, 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 it is. I must say, in the sort of scientific realm, many of us are run, wondering when it's going to be downgraded to a bio-level 2 organism because that will then immediately remove an argument for why it should be taken more seriously right it would be a, an insane thing to do <laughs> um but it does feel like we're living in this collective insanity anyway so it's it's interesting you mentioned those sort of the the, the different interest groups there peter because they are the, the, uh, we are unfortunately sort of seeing that emergence of, of um, alternative theories and, and, and ways of understanding it and ways of looking at it that make it, um, they sort of dilute the ability to discuss it in sensible terms. And I, I wonder, I, I worry a little bit about the sort of future because as we were talking about that sort of loss of um, public consensus on it, what what does the next thing look like? Because... Uh, uh, you, you, if, if you look at how some some people are still in this place where they're just like uh, getting angry with random Chinese people in the street uh, and they're at that level of understanding this problem because they, they've only been able to understand it in that like strictly weird xenophobic political sphere and not in any kind of scientific or, or um, informed sphere. Uh, do, do we have what it takes to sort of manage the next uh, COVID? God forbid we talk about it that uh, early, but... No. No, I would say it's we're in a worse position now, I would say, than we ever were, right? But not only have we not learned any of the lessons from this one, but we've gone backwards. We've, and it's not um... even COVID, you know, it's not even the next COVID. <sighs> Measles, tuberculosis, or like so much stuff, like especially the vaccine-related ones, you know, so many diseases that we can stop with vaccines, where vaccines have been super effective, now the backlash has been well people don't want vaccines at all so the uh... okay <laughs> I, I don't know what i expected but um i suppose that's the answer that's we're gonna get susie um... has there been a drop off in things like hpv take-up rates at schools uh sorry hpv vaccine sorry yeah so the, yeah so i'm not sure about that one but definitely the childhood vaccines definitely measles whooping cough those ones are massively down um, don't know about HPV. So that's the one that's given for, um, it prevents uh, cervical cancer. Yeah. Uh, prevents HPV, quite so. Yeah, but mm. so, so and a study's just come out from Scotland, actually, that showed that the cohort that's that got that vaccine when they were 12 or 13, there has been not a single case of cervical cancer in that cohort. So that vaccine is so good, so good. So again, it will be absolutely devastating if if that all you know all unravels. The thing that's sort of starting to worry me a little bit is is tuberculosis. So there's been hints that that um, things might be going bad for TB because so this is a 
this is another one of our category three organisms that we have to work in the lab at category three because it's airborne. Um, this one's a bacteria. Um, and this bacteria is amazing in that uh, they, they estimate about a third of the world's population are infected and don't know it. Because for most people who get TB, it becomes latent. And so it just sort of lives in your lungs and your body and the bacteria kind of reach a bit of a stalemate. And you can be like that for most of your life. And then generally, as people get older, uh, if they become homeless, you know, there's things that will then cause that bacteria to reactivate and then they get very, very ill. And the, it sounds like the rates of TB are basically increasing. So it looks like people, you know, because people are getting repeated COVID infections, it's impacted their immune response. Uh, their inability to control this bacteria is changing. And so we're going to see much more reactivation of this bacteria. Uh, uh, bacteria and it's treatable well most strains are treatable by antibiotics but those antibiotics take about six months for uncomplicated tb and they are horrendous so it's just oh, it's just it's just awful all for the sake of dealing with ventilation getting a bit of mask culture you know all of these things that will prevent protect us from all these airborne diseases um instead we're just sleepwalking it feels like into a bit of a microbial disaster i feel like it's a bit more of a stride than a sleepwalk <laughs> i think from a legal running, actually <laughs> running with your eyes closed <laughs> peter from from a legal point of view it might it might be sort of the opposite because if you leave parliament out of the picture i think it's quite clear that there won't be any political appetite to take any uh, legislative action God, no. in response yeah in response to the next mass disabling event, um, and that you know, that I, th I think I think that uh, the idea that mass disabling is good for business is misguided, but I think that seems to be the consensus amongst business. Um, however, that does mean that the law would then respond, and it took the law a while to respond to asbestos, and so you know you might you might have to wait twenty or forty years, but the the legal system would respond over time to, to new things. And perhaps we would end up with more robust legal duties that are actually enforced for these sorts of things. I, I think that, for example, for schools, my school has a robust policy that if you, if your child has diarrhea or vomiting, it is not allowed back at school 48 hours under any circumstances. Now that's clearly out of all proportion to the risk from children with COVID and flu symptoms in the middle of a pandemic, but it is, it's a it's a response that has grown up over time because they have they they have learned and the government didn't step in with a top down measure right and so I do think that there will be to some extent if the government does everything for you that does that does stop these things evolving yes okay it would be better if we weren't where we were I'm going to stop <laughs> with the attempt to put a positive spin on now I was going to say though there is an <laughs> there is an opportunity there though right like if if a legal challenge can be taken and and be successfully successfully taken, that really gives some potential new tools for parents and teachers and then uh, other workplaces to. You meant this. <clears throat> Sorry, uh, that's what you meant, Peter, about that hypothetical client uh, taking up the case. Uh, just for, for lay people at home, you referenced earlier about um, how New Zealand has a slightly different system because we are under ACC to Australia. Uh, and for those who don't know, uh, what, is it, what is the sort of shape of that? What, how does ACC impact the sort of um, ability to make a civic case over something like this, like workplace injuries? Um, 
that's that's a somewhat complic complicated Too big. dividing line, um, sure. which which I probably, I won't attempt to define too clearly. Sure. Um, as, but essentially personal injury, which so if, if you get hurt by another person or by falling over or whatever, you are covered by the ACC scheme. And for anything where you're covered by the ACC scheme, you cannot sue the person who caused you the personal injury. So that's reasonably straightforward. Then we get into infections and things like you know for example catching covid on on the ruby princess cruise liner should they have sailed the cruise liner in those conditions when the world was um being swept with covid it has just come out that they offered 12 million dollars to settle the claims of the people who had been on it so we, there's some economic argument that they shouldn't have let's put it that way the there are some circumstances in which if you catch something at work then it is covered by acc if it is covered by ACC, then you get earnings-related compensation, you get well looked after. If it is not covered by ACC, then you can sue. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean that you will always win if you sue. But it's important to know that the line is that simple. You've either got ACC or your right to sue has not been extinguished. But the trouble is it's a bit like um, if you have your arm in a cast for two years, the, mus the muscles sort of wither. This, this bit of the New Zealand legal system just doesn't get exercised very much. And so you don't have very many people like me who excitedly want to talk about personal injury law at dinner parties, <laughs> which clearly is a problem because obviously American legal culture is much better, as we all know from the TV. So <laughs> That's fascinating stuff. Um, so whether or not you... So if you get COVID in the workplace, um, then there's no harm in... And as a result, you have you have a loss of earnings. There is no harm in applying to ACC sure. if you can persuade your doctor to fill in the form and ask them to coverage. And if they turn um, you down, then maybe you can sue. <laughs> we need people to do that. Yeah. And we need those decisions to be challenged, which for which legal aid is usually available um, or often available. Um, so the government will help with legal fees, although sometimes those are repayable at a low rate. And yeah, those decisions will come through the courts and we will eventually end up with a clear line. But a lot of people will be disabled in the meantime. Okay, I mean, we're out there with serious long COVID issues. And that's the issue, right? Is that the people who will have to fight this are actually too ill to fight it. Yeah. Which is why we need collective solutions. And that's yeah. why, I mean, my hope is, for example, for teaching. The, I mean, it's absolutely fine if we have a teacher who happens to, to want to run a personal case and hire a lawyer and do this all by themselves. But what would be infinitely more effective would be for people to use unions and collective structures in the traditional way, run a COVID-aware slate, you know, just become a substantial ginger group within the NZDI or the PPTA, given that, as we know, most of the other people on the PPTA or NZDI will have no interest in COVID whatsoever. They probably won't even mind them setting COVID policy. Look, there are very somebody else does it. <laughs> there are unionists and people in the leadership structure who listen to this podcast. So I'm watching. <laughs> uh, Peter, I, I think we'll we'll try and um, wrap things up now. Um, but where can people engage or start to access information or begin a, a journey in that direction? I guess. Well, I think it's important to emphasise that getting redress for your legal problems really does depend on your particular circumstances. And so it's easy to talk about this in really general terms, but it just doesn't work to say 
every teacher with a sniffle in the country has to erect test before they go into the classroom. You're, you're just, you're not trying, particularly in the current political climate, you're not going to be able to set that sort of absolutely broad global policy. But what people can do is that they can take their particular circumstances and they can go to, if they can afford to pay for a lawyer, then they can talk to a lawyer. If they can't afford to talk to a lawyer, then um, if they're a union member, they can talk to their union. Um, if they can't afford a lawyer, then there is access to lawyers through things like community law. Um, there are there are actually quite a few schemes that allow people to access lawyers for some initial advice. And when it comes to, for example, writing a slightly mean email to the principal um, talking about the Code of Professional Responsibility, which you can find on the Teaching Council website, people can do this themselves. And they probably have a friend or an uncle or something who's really good at writing mean emails. Um, that can follow through to real complaints. Again, you know, the Teaching Council does not expect you to have a barrister to write your complaint for you. I assure you that if you get a barrister to write your complaint for you, they'll take it pretty seriously, but <laughs> hopefully they'll take it seriously anyway. Um, so I think people, yeah, I think often people assume these processes are sort of impossible to navigate, but um, there are specific steps, like getting getting the High Court um, to set aside a government decision um, for national policy, you are going to need a lawyer. If you try and do that by yourself, it's not technically impossible, but it's not going to work in practice. However, lots of these other steps can be done, particularly if you've got any collective structure that you're able to access. Can I just say that um, it would actually be amazing if people were using the rats more <laughs> liberally, both if they have a sniffle, but also if they get COVID coming out of COVID. And they're actually like, there are suppliers who can supply organizations incredibly cheaply, like at a dollar a test or something. And that makes them actually pretty damn cost effective because the cost of then having to you know get supply teachers or whatever, if your staff are out, will be vastly more than actually just trying to keep people with COVID out of the environment right oh so again it's kind of false economies and it drives me nuts <laughs> i think this is where we end up a lot of the time at the end of um one of our issues podcasts is telling people to organize um and yeah and, and build those collective structures if they're not there and tap into the ones that are there uh, so if you if you are a teacher or part of a, a different large union um, and you have got worries about these things that's one of your first ports of call or if you just happen to be a philanthropist, that will do as well. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thank you so much uh, for joining us, Peter and Susie. Pleasure to talk. Lovely to see you again. Uh, thank you to my co-host, Oliver. Huh? Thanks for joining us again. Pleasure. Kakitsu. All right. That's been another episode of One of 200. Uh, if you've found some interesting information there or things that you found helpful or useful, uh, share this around. Uh, let people know um, the important parts. Uh, go and clip some of it yourself. We don't care. Uh, plagiarize us. I really don't give a shit at this point. Uh, give that information out there. Uh, let people know that there are options um, and that we can try and move forward th with this stuff, um, even if it does seem sometimes uh, like it's all a bit uh, a bit much and, and a bit um, impossible. We'll catch you on the weekend for current events. That's been another episode. We'll see you next time. If offices are denied Live in a pointless life, but I'm learning all your lessons. Fucking politics is no distinction. The words are now. It's paid with good intentions. And all the
Amongst the people every day 